Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 20. We will read verses 1 and 2, 11 to 18, and 29 to 31. I'll take that again. Verses 1 and 2, 11 to 18, and 29 to 31. As is our custom, when I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. Verses 1 and 2. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Verse 11 to 18. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Verses 29 to 31. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Femi. Good morning, everyone, and happy Easter. Wow. I now know who my friends are. Uh, Faith said happy Easter. You will be a deaconess next week. All right. Um, Nice to welcome you here uh, for our Easter service. Um, You know, it's the the most central event, actually, in the Christian Christian, church. a story is the most central event, the most important event, and we want to look at that today. Yeah, we just read one of the accounts 
of um, the resurrection of Jesus. We read through the book of John because we've actually been doing a series on the book of John since January, and we're coming towards the end of that. We've been trying to see who the person of Jesus is, going through certain events in his life, and then trying to discover what that means for us today. So today we're going to be looking at the risen son, and we're going to discuss some very important issues, I think, that the resurrection um, points us toward. All right, so let me start with this question. Well, this question. If I say, or someone says, I have faith in my wife. When a man utters these words, what does he mean? Well, he doesn't necessarily mean that he believes that in the fidelity of his wife. It could be that. Neither does it just mean that she is a very good mother. Maybe he's saying, I have faith in my wife, and the context was somebody talking about how good, how good um, the culinary skills of their wives were. And he can say, I have faith in my wife. He could be talking about the fact that she has very good aesthetic um, uh, qualities. She knows how to arrange a house, decorate it, and maybe she's very good at buying shoes. Or, like most women like to think, but no man actually admits that he doesn't, maybe he's talking about her multitasking abilities. Hands up if you think women have multitasking abilities. Uh, okay, Tedu raised up his hand. He does, you know the people that don't want to get into trouble with their wives. <laughs> Tedu, well done. All right, but you see, when we say something like, I have faith in something, or I just have faith in this person, it's not enough to just say, well, he believes everything about that person. No, he's talking about a particular context. Sometimes it's even negative. I can speak of some of my friends and say, okay, I have faith in Francis. For what? That he would always make it late to every appointment, right? have faith in him. Not that, I'm not saying something about him that is true, but if the, if the heart fits, then you can put it on Francis. Huh? Or if someone said, I believe I can fly, or sings, I believe I can fly, what does he mean? Does he mean that uh, there's a unique suspension of the gravitational forces acting on him? Or he's now developed uh, bird-like abilities to work against the gravitational force that we have in the world. Or maybe he has some special spiritual levitational abilities. Or maybe it's just the height of positive thinking, but he's only speaking metaphorically. You see, if you, if you don't know what he's saying, and you think by listening to the song that you also can fly, and you go to the top of the building and try it out, it would have very, very dire consequences, wouldn't it? In other words, how whatever we believe when we speak about faith in something, it's quite important to understand what that is. So like in the Apostles' Creed that we confess today, we said something like this, I believe in Jesus Christ, and one of the things we say we believed is that he descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. And when we say that, what do we mean? Because Easter is all about this confession. But again, when you don't have the proper understanding of what this is, you risk appropriating it and its significance wrongly. Or if you are someone that doesn't believe something like that, you may look at the people that believe it and you start to mock them. Or if you are someone that confesses that you believe but you fully don't understand, you probably will start trying to evangelize people in the wrong way or with something that is untrue. So, the discussion about Easter, as I've said, the most central event in Christian faith, 
maybe along with the crucifixion, leads us to a discussion of the meaning of faith. The passage we read has everything to do with faith. In the context of the supposedly bleak crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we are pointed to this whole thing. If or not people should have faith in this dead Savior, or if he's risen again, what does that actually mean? So our sermon today, the risen son, will be treated under three headings. Seeing and believing. Seeing and not believing. Not seeing and believing. Say it again. Seeing and believing. Seeing and not believing. Not seeing and believing. So let's go back and look at the passage. If you read verse 1, it says something. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that, and saw, and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now what's going on? Mary went to Jesus' tomb after he's died, he's crucified. Now, most likely what she went to do was to finish some of the burial proceedings. Uh, earlier, in the, just towards the end of last chapter, we had um, a man called Nicodemus and another man, Joseph of Arimathea. They'd gone to, they carried him, taken him to, this, uh, to the tomb. But most likely they would not have finished all the burial rites on him because, as it says in uh, verse 30, I think verse 30, 40 of chapter 19, that it was the time of the Passover. So they wouldn't have been able to finish all they needed to do. And so Mary is now going there, most likely to actually finish the work. Now it says that it happened while it was still dark. Now this, has, this no doubt has reference to the actual time of the day. But if you've been reading and tracking the book of John as we have been doing, you'll see that when John starts to bring in this whole darkness night thing, he's not just giving us a historical fact. So we start to see that, in, for instance, in the first book, the introduction of the book of John, in John chapter 1, and he's speaking about this word that uh, was with God and became God, uh, sorry, was with God and became flesh, the word who was also God, and he says about him, in him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you follow, go to chapter 3, this Nicodemus that we just spoke about, that went and uh, buried him, he had, the first time he met Jesus in chapter 3, it says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, if you follow the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus, you'll find out that not only was he talking about the night of the, uh, of the time, but also the night of Nicodemus's condition. That's why even when John calls him again in chapter 19, when he refers to Nicodemus, he says he was accompanied, that Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And probably the most striking one of these in the book of John is in John chapter 13, verse 30. Jesus knows he's about to die. He is now speaking with his disciples, trying to tell them about things that would happen after. But one of the disciples does not wait till the end, because his disciple is going to betray Jesus. The name Judas Iscariot. 
And it says that as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Why was it referred to here? Because Mary's world had become very dark. In fact, she had lost the one that she loved so dearly. Notice that it wasn't, as would probably be the custom, any of Jesus' kinsmen or any of the disciples that comes first to visit Jesus. It is Mary. Mary had so much love for him, we see her constant wailing in the passages we read. Verse 11, Mary stood out the tomb crying. Verse 13, woman, why are you crying? Verse 15, woman, why are you crying? This woman was wailing. She had not been able to get over it. You see, Jesus meant so much to her because of what Jesus had done for her. We don't know too much about Mary, but in another book of, about Jesus, the book of Luke, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 8 of that book, verses 1 to 2, we do know that Jesus had cast out at least seven demons out of Mary. You can imagine what kind of oppression she had faced in her life. It wasn't only the torment, the spiritual and psychological torment that she faced, but also the social torment. She would have been an outcast in the society. And here was a man who treated her as a woman and also the disenfranchised in the society. He treated them differently. He treated her with dignity, he treated her with love, and he also delivered her. Have you ever had someone in your life like that? Maybe a parent, one you love so much, that cared for you so much, one that meant something like that to you, or maybe a spouse. And all of a sudden, like Mary, you no longer have that person. You see, Mary couldn't shake that off. Even though he was dead, she still felt this attachment to him. And what's worse now is, for many people who've lost loved ones, and you know, that connection is still there, that's why you probably go to the sites, the graveyards, maybe on their birthday, or maybe on the day that they died. And you know when you are speaking to them, it's not so much that you're speaking with someone, but you are still trying to continue that connection because of the way you love that person. Now, Mary had already had Jesus taken away from her by death, but now she's facing a condition that now even his dead body was going to be taken away from her. In other words, well, I, I don't think they heard me, but <laughs> amen. <laughs> All right, but he's been taken away from her. Now, the tables had radically turned. The Lord, who once took care of Mary now needed her to take care of him. That's what she thought, verse 15. She said, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Her Lord was dead. And the truth is, someone had to tell her that dead lords, though they may provide memories of sentimental value, They are not really lords. Neither can they be saviors. If Jesus is the light of the world, as we've been saying, if he's this wonderful, powerful person who's doing things nobody has ever done, there was one enemy he still couldn't defeat, and that was the enemy of death. You see, this view of Jesus 
in a tomb, helpless, needing a woman that he had cast out seven demons from, to now be looking for him, to take care of him, is not good news. It is very bad news. So that when she goes in verse 2 to go and meet Peter and the other disciple who we believe is John, she went to give them news. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. This is bad news. And this is the very dark view of the crucifixion on the first day of the week while it was still dark. Not only was Mary's condition dark, but also the cosmic implications of the supposed savior of the world was very dark as long as he laid in the tomb. Now, of course, this view that Mary had of Jesus, even though it is very affectionate, it was deeply inaccurate. What happened? If she gave them bad news in verse 2, by verse 18, she's now giving them good news. I have seen the Lord. Now, by that, she didn't mean I have seen where they've put him. I have seen the Lord in a different way. Where did all of that change? Well, all of that changed in this um, conversation with the supposed gardener. Now, let's look at that, because when Mary is speaking with this gardener in verse, uh, well, this supposed gardener, and starts uh, in verse uh, 14, you know, she really didn't care who he was, just like the angels. She saw the angels. She didn't even know they were angels. All she cared about now was the grief that she was going through and how she could get her Lord back. And so when she sees this gardener, she just quickly goes to him and says, look, why are you crying? That's not the issue. Just let me know. She's probably thinking, is he a robber? Let me know where he is, and I will go and get him. She only cared about Jesus, but she only cared about a helpless Jesus. But she sees him. How come she doesn't recognize him? There's something happening because she sees Jesus and she thinks he's the gardener, but she doesn't recognize him. She doesn't even recognize his voice. And it says that he then said, Mary, in verse 16. And then she turned around and looked at him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means not just teacher, but my teacher. How did Jesus call her? Maybe did he, he didn't say Mary. Do you remember that time? I think what happened basically is, you know, growing up, and all of us probably know this, you know when you are in trouble with your parents, don't you? Right? You know. Most times, if you are in trouble, ah, Femi, how are you? Femi, Femi, you know, that kind. Femi, maybe they are calling you to come and change the uh, channel, and they, they are on their bed and come and get the control for them. But we are not insulting parents here today, because my dad is here. So we are not reporting on them. But anyway, but if they said, Olu Femi, oh my word. Whenever a Nigerian parent calls your full name, just run. The way the name is said most likely points you, you've heard it before. And the way Jesus would have said, Mary, he must have said it in a familiar way that probably only he did, said it in, and she would then recognize. You see, Mary no longer was going to have a relationship with the dead Lord because 
Jesus rising from the dead, as huge and as big an event that is for the whole world, is also a very personal event. Jesus was risen from the dead, he's saying, not just world or my bride, but he's saying, really? He's saying, Jumoke. He's saying, Francis. Just as he's saying, Mary. She was looking for a dead Jesus, but now she had seen a risen Jesus. Jesus had gone through the pains of death, and we're wondering, well, he's not so bad. He's conquered demons, he's conquered, you know, diseases, he's conquered injustices, but he can't surely conquer death. No, in his rising from the grave, he had looked death in his face, and he had conquered the last enemy of man. And now he's saying, in this particular state, I want to have a personal relationship with you. Not only did he say Mary, to his disciples, he said, go instead to my, he didn't say disciples, but to who? To my brothers. And tell them. I don't know about some of us here, but there is a tendency that we have an inaccurate view of Jesus. Jesus maybe is a cultural badge that we put on. Or Jesus maybe, you know, wherever he is, I'm sure was a great guy, a Christian, I have to say I believe in the third day. No, resurrection is saying that Jesus is no longer dead, he's alive, but he also wants to have a personal relationship with you. He knows you by name. Question is, do you know him? Now, the disciples and Mary can be forgiven for, being, for not expecting Jesus to be alive. After all, they witnessed his death. And the one thing they saw when Romans crucified people, they stayed dead. And so in other words, for them to have believed this monumental event, there was only one way they were going to do that. They were going to have to see him. For them to put their faith in Jesus Christ, they needed the evidence of sight. And God being so gracious, Jesus did what? He appeared to them. Jesus could have risen and ascended to heaven, but Jesus wanted their faith to be grounded in reality, so he gave them evidence. Seeing is believing. And Jesus says in verse 29, you have seen me and you have believed. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You can't tell someone that says they love you and they're always abusing you, they're always losing their temper with you, they never buy you any presents. You're going to say, look, if you say you love me, I have to... See it. And for the people whose Lord had been crucified, they needed to see to believe. Now, but I want to say one thing very quickly. Do not suppose that seeing always inspires belief. Why? Because it doesn't. Second point. Seeing and not believing. Now, you may be here, and maybe you do doubt the resurrection. Maybe as a Muslim, or maybe, maybe you don't believe, maybe you call yourself an atheist, or maybe an agnostic. So you're not saying you believe, you're not saying you don't believe, but you know, this is an extraordinary claim for someone to rise from the dead. 
And for many of us Christians here, we're not even sure what to believe about the matter. You know, that's what some ancient people wrote. And so now, you know, we, we just have to confess it. You can say, well, maybe as a Christian, I have to believe it. But, but science has obviously showed us that, you know, this is a myth. And so people will be asking for evidence, for proof. Now, Jesus in chapter 5, verse 36, does tell us, 36 to 38, that, look, though his works testified about him, though a prophet testified about him, people do not believe. Now, somebody would then say, well, that's a cheap way out. That's a cheap way out. It's a very, very cheap way out. You Christians say that. You have to have faith in it. But we all know that faith means for you to believe in something where there is evidence. Now, if you're that kind of person, let me just give you six reasons to counter that. So, for instance, we know by history and what we've read here that there was an empty tomb. You say, well, no, that's just what's written. Well, look at it this way. Before people would stake their lives on a resurrection, because eventually disciples that followed Jesus stake their lives on it, they were persecuted, before they would do that, they would most likely have visited the site of his tomb. Why? Because most heroes or leaders of movements that were at that time, and even now, when the leader died, you know what happened? The burial ground became a site where they venerated. It became like a shrine. If Jesus truly was still in the grave, then that would have been a shrine. But we have no record of people visiting a grave of Jesus. Two, you may say, for instance, that robbers came and took him. But we see in verse 2, verse 13, and verse 15 that the wrappings that would have gone around his body and then the cloth that would have been on his leg was, was there. Now, if robbers had come they would, to take him, most likely they would have taken him with the wrappings. But the wrappings were there. Or if they didn't want to take the wrappings, because they are robbers and thieves, and time is very, very important, they would have quickly taken a the wrappings, throw it away, so it will have been in disarray, and then they will have taken the body. But it says that it was neatly folded. Or maybe you think, no, he didn't rise bodily, he rose spiritually in the hearts and the minds of the disciples. It was more like a ghost. It was a vision that they saw, as some people said. Now, first of all, people, don't, people at that time, it was very, very common, as it is still now, for people to see ghosts. You know, if you had a kind of encounter, a vision, or whatever, you saw one ghost. I don't know how many of us have seen ghosts here. But you will not have been persecuted for seeing a ghost. It's not, it's not an extraordinary thing. It's not a unique thing. And by the way, we see in verse 17 that Mary grabbed him. If you know anything about ghosts, you cannot grab a ghost, except you yourself are a ghost. She grabbed him. Thomas grabbed him later in the chapter. And in another uh, um, uh, account of this in the book of Luke, if you look at Luke 24, 37 to 42, he sat down with them and he ate fish, broiled fish, most likely catfish, <laughs> roasted. If I have a feeling it was with bully, and they put pepper sauce on it. Ghosts don't, look, maybe they liked it in their previous life, but you cannot, I have bad news for you, you will not eat fish when you have gone to heaven. You just wouldn't. Except he had a body. This I even find probably the most extraordinary. You know, if you want to 
create a lie, fabricate a story, one of the things you have to do is you have to make it look very credible, very, very genuine, isn't it? Who is the first witness to see Jesus? Is Mary. The first witness to see is Mary. Who is Mary? Well, Mary is a woman. At that time, at least among Jewish courts, the testimony of a woman was not seen to be credible. No one took the testimony of a woman. It wasn't even admissible in court. Now, if you're trying to fabricate a story and you want people to believe it, why would the first person that you say witness this story be someone whose witness will not be credible? It doesn't help your story, except, of course, it is true. Two more. There's some that there's this thing called swoon theory, that Jesus didn't really die. He swooned and then recovered. He swooned and then recovered. Well, first of all, you have to say, if he did that, how did he remove the wrappings? And how did he even move the stone that several people had to, to move? And one of the things, look, when I was growing, I don't know how many of us used to be wrestling fans, you know, WWF, you know, late 80s, early 90s. I stopped in the mid-90s because I eventually found out that it was all, at, oh, oh, there's some children here, I can't tell you. Okay, that it was all staged. That, that almost broke my heart. But my favorite wrestler, I remember, they even, you know, one of the things that used to annoy me, on Sunday, they used to show it around 11. I, used to, I always used to try to feel sick so that my parents wouldn't take me. They never fell for it, of course. But my favorite wrestler was a guy called Brett the Hitman Hart. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, he was good, have you? And he was called the excellence of execution. The excellence of execution. His move was deadly. Now, but we know that all of that was play. Not the Roman soldiers when they crucified. They were the true excellence in execution. When a Roman soldier crucified someone, that person died. And if the person didn't die on time, you know what they would do? They would take something to break the person's legs. Why? Because when you are lying down like this, the only way you are, trying, you are breathing, you can breathe is to lift yourself up, you know, with your lungs. Lift yourself up. Lift yourself up. But if you break the person's ankles, the person cannot lift himself up again. So the person will eventually die of asphyxia. Now in chapter 19, verse 31 to 33, it says that they went to go and see because they wanted to quickly bring these people down. So they went to see whether they were dead. The person next to Jesus wasn't there. They broke his legs. When they wanted to break Jesus' legs, they now realized, oh, no, well, there's no need because Jesus was dead. And finally, historical sociologists have looked at the growth of Christianity. There is no credible explanation for people who were, at one hand, scared of what would happen. You can see the disciples were hiding in verse 19. They were scared of what would happen, and all of a sudden, this thing started to spread. Why would they keep spreading a lie in this way? Something they didn't believe, promising eternal life when they knew it was all a fraud. And we don't even need historical sociologists to tell us that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 17, says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus is 
is not risen from the dead, I don't have a job. I should quit. You see, the truth is that from a historical standpoint, the resurrection of Jesus is the only plausible way to interpret the events that have happened since. But still, even though we've given you all of these, seeing is not always um, enough for believing. In fact, Jesus himself said this somewhere because... You see, believing in Jesus and the resurrection is more than just believing in a fact. It requires something from you. In Luke chapter 19, uh, 16, verse 19-31, we have this parable, this story about uh, a poor man uh, called Lazarus and a rich man. Right? The rich man was, you know, enjoyed his life during this time. The poor man didn't. They both went. Eventually, they died. And Lazarus is enjoying. But the rich man is now suffering the torments of eternal misery. And so he tells Abraham, who is with Lazarus, to say, look, I have siblings. Can you please go and tell those siblings, those brothers of mine, let them amend their ways so that they don't come to this place where I am suffering. And then he says, the Abraham said to the man, he says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. I'm reading from verse 29, Luke 16. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have the Bible, they have the word. Let them listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, seeing is not always believing. Because some of us don't actually want to check the evidence because we don't, know, we don't want to see what we'll find. Some of us are running away from it because there's something in your lifestyle that you don't want to give up. And if you come to terms with the fact that Jesus is risen and everything he said about himself is true, then you are not in a neutral position. So we make up these stories. Jesus maybe is a legend. No, these are historical, with, uh, verifiable witnesses. Maybe Jesus is a liar. There's been no more morally impeccable person venerated in many religions than him. Or maybe he's a lunatic. There was no one more in his right mind than this man. No, you can't have any of these excuses. Then maybe what we then do is that he's a very good moral teacher. Jesus does not give you that excuse. He is either a lunatic, he's either a legend, he's either a liar, or he is Lord. But you cannot have it both ways. But the truth now, as Jesus is saying, is that all those who believe, all those who believe now will do so according to hearing through his word. Let me go through the third point. If we've seen that seeing is believing, that's what the disciples had. But that not all the time that we see do we believe. There's one more, which is not seeing and believing. Let's go back to the story. Now, as we've said, Mary's affection for Jesus is unquestionable. But if you look in verse 17, something is strange. It almost seems like it's not mutual. Mary has said, ah, Rabboni. She sees him, and what does she want to do? She grabs him. And what does Jesus then say? 
do not hold to me for, do not hold on to me. Ah, ah. Imagine a friend of yours who has traveled for a long time, 15 years or something. You guys have been texting each other, but then you now lost contact. And then the person contacts you the first time that he's coming back to visit. And you see the person at the airport. And then you run to want to grab the person. And you grab the person. And the person says, ah, hold on now. Cool down. Don't hold on to me. That would hurt, wouldn't it? Every time I used to look at this story, I'm like, but why is Jesus so cruel? Don't hold on to me. She's, look, you're just risen from the dead. Now, it's not because there was something... I don't think unholy in touching Jesus. That's not the reason, because other people touch Jesus. Thomas touches Jesus after. So there must be another reason. You know what? I think, I believe, because he, in the Greek he says, stop clinging unto me. I believe there's something about the motivation in which, or the motivation was driving her clinging to him that Jesus was trying to correct. You know, remember, three times in this passage, Mary has said, they have taken the Lord. They have taken the Lord away. If you've carried him away. And those three times also, she stood outside the tomb crying. Woman, woman, why are you crying? Woman, why are you crying? Mary had grown, her affection for Jesus had started to color her view of Jesus. You remember, she now thought that this Jesus, she could even help, she could even save, she could even take care of whilst he was dead. And now in her clinging on to Jesus, she's saying only one thing. I let you go the last time. I am not going to let you go again. She wanted to domesticate Jesus for herself only. If Jesus were very, very small, she probably would want to put him inside her pocket. But Jesus explains further why this is not right. He says... Do not cling or hold on to me, for I have not yet, what, ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. In other words, there's something about Jesus' ascension that brings about a new relationship with his disciples and the preaching of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, he's saying the ascension to the Father is very important. If you read, uh, like we went through verse four, uh, chapter 14, 15, 16 in the upper room, he kept talking about his making his way to the Father. He's making his way to the Father. But what was where he was going to comfort them when he was going back to the Father? He was going to send another comforter like him, the Holy Spirit. If Mary clinged on to Jesus in a way that he must not go, I will not let you go, then even though he may have a relationship with Mary, he's not going to have a relationship with all the other people who will now hear about Jesus even though they have not seen him. And that is why Mary, he commissions her, Mary, a woman who didn't have any value in that society, as all women didn't, but even a woman that had gone through what she'd done, she became the first preacher of the gospel. Go and tell them. And so she moved from saying bad news. They've taken the Lord away to now what? I have seen the Lord. The first disciples were the ones who saw and believed. And that was how faith came. But Jesus is now concerned about those, verse 29, who have not seen 
and will believe. In other words, we're not just coming to a crucified Savior or a risen Lord, but what we need is a crucified Savior and a risen and ascended Lord. Now, when we ask for us to put our faith in something that we have not seen, but we are called to believe, it is not the kind of faith that we see all around us now. Because right, right now in Lagos, very many views of faith. This kind of faith is not the faith that says you can create a reality that doesn't exist. If you believe something and you believe it, just believe it. You can, you know, aim for the, aim for the, you can aim for the sun. You can move anything. You can be anything. You know how we tell people, or our children. You can be anything that you want to be. Huh? Look, if your child is five and doesn't know math, he can't be everything. Maybe you can push him. If he doesn't know it at 15, I'm starting to, he can't be an engineer. If he doesn't know math at 21, I am telling you, he cannot be a math teacher at least, Abby. No matter how many times you want him to keep believing, there is a time that you start believing things that are not real, and uh, people start to question whether you actually have it all together. That's not the kind of faith Christianity is talking about. Neither is it the kind of faith that is not based on any evidence at all. All the things that we are seeing here, this is evidence. Now you say, well, I have to see it in, like in... Uh, I can um, see something in a test tube. Really? Because we can't prove it in the same way that you do, you see it in a test tube. All right, let me ask you then. The person called Plato, does he, did he exist? Most likely you say, yes, Plato existed. Okay, how do you know Plato existed? Have you seen Plato? They say, well, things were written about Plato. Yes, things were written about Plato 400 years before Jesus came. And there was only one record. We depend on, we have faith in someone that is dead, things written about him, but we have a problem with someone who had not just four of his disciples writing about him, but even two others within the first and second century of people that didn't even like him. No, the reason why we don't want to believe in Jesus is because of what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to live a life of purity. He calls us to live a life where we don't use others. He calls us to live a life where we work for others in sacrifice. And that is a problem for us because we only think about ourselves. And so for you, the life of a Christian must be totally boring or must be, I don't have anything in it. I can't get anything out of it. And that is where you are dead wrong. Because the resurrection is not just about a historical fact. It has and offers you something that nobody else can offer you. When you look at the crucifixion in light of the resurrection, all of a sudden the crucifixion is not the darkest moment of history. Because through the resurrection, God vindicates the sacrifice of the crucifixion. Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, why does he say you are still in your sins? He's saying then the death of Christ did not mean anything. But if there is a resurrection, then your sins can be forgiven. And there's even more. You see, in John chapter 5, again in this book, Jesus is saying, listen to what he says in John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whosoever hears my words and believes them, believes him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. What is this life, this eternal life? Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear the vo his voice and come out, those who have done what is good to rise to life, and those who have done what is evil to rise to be condemned. The resurrection, please let me say, is not a paradigm for us to look at my struggling business and say, well, if the dry bones live, then my business also will live. Please don't do that with the resurrection. Because it's saying something far more important. You may be having a good life. Maybe you've never been so ill. You've never lost anyone close to you. Your business has always been doing very well. You've been very well in, in school. Guess what? One day, if you're married, you would either bury your spouse or your spouse will bury you. Despite the very good life. And no matter how you try to turn death into a celebration of life, whether you die at 95 or you die at 50, according to the Bible, death is always tragic. And who is going to deliver you from that? And this is why the resurrection is such good news. It's not just for us to be able to have a relationship with the risen Lord, yes. But also, Jesus has conquered death, not just for himself as an example, but he has conquered death for all of those who will believe in Jesus. Jesus is saying that if you find your way to the grave, if you believe in me, the grave is not the last answer. And if you think you have a relationship with somebody here today, but you know what, well, when we rise again, I don't even know what we're going to rise as, you know, are we going to have bodies? Are we going to be spirits? Are we, well, don't forget, when she saw Jesus, she saw him quite all right. She didn't really recognize him. So there was something about Jesus that was different than the Jesus before. But when Jesus called her name, she recognized something about Jesus that was the same than Jesus before the death. What am I saying? In the resurrection, Latunde will be Latunde. Temidayo will be Temidayo. Kemi will be Kemi. The difference, though, is that, you know, sometimes we look at a particular man and say, ah, that man, he's a shadow of himself. He's a shadow of himself. Why? Maybe because he's grown so old. He's not as active as before. The resurrection says that all of us right now, we are shadows of ourselves. The true selves that we are meant to be, we don't have now. Sometimes we may have flashes of it. Sometimes somebody does something so good and you're like, wow, if only you can be like this all the time. The resurrection says the person will be like this eternally and even more. For eye has not seen, neither has it entered into the heart of man what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. And he only gives that to you if you believe in the one, yes, you have not seen, but has given evidence that he is alive, will you put your trust in him? This offer is something that nobody else can give you. The offer of life everlasting. Can I guarantee that? I can guarantee that because Jesus rose from the dead. And John says, I have written these things so that we can believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and truly the Savior of the world. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus' life, we see that many things, nothing could hold him captive. But Mary thought, and many of his disciples thought, that probably death could hold him captive. We thank you that by the Spirit of God, you raised him from the dead. And so now, Lord, we ask that if there's anyone here whose heart is being stirred up by you, who know that they have to acknowledge their sins, Father, we pray that you would draw them by your Spirit. For as you have said, that there is no one that will come unto me that I will cast out. Father, we pray that you would draw them by your Spirit. Give them new eternal life now, resurrection life now, with the promise of giving them resurrection life fully in the body. And we also pray for all of us who have then passed from death to life. Help us, O God, to live in accordance with the spirit that you've given because Jesus has now ascended. And we pray that as we continue to celebrate these things today in our singing and also as we contemplate about the good news with all of the saints all around the world, as you came the first time, we joined with them to say, come again, Lord Jesus. Come again. For this aching world looks for you. And finish what you started. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.